Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The Medical School HQ Podcast, session number 50. I swear to fulfill, to the best of my ability and judgment, this covenant. I will respect the hard-won scientific gains of those physicians in whose steps I walk and gladly share such knowledge as is mine with those who are to follow. I will apply, for the benefit of the sick, all measures that are required, avoiding those twin traps of overtreatment and therapeutic nihilism. I will remember that there is art to medicine as well as science, and that warmth, sympathy, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. I will not be ashamed to say, I know not, nor will I fail to call in my colleagues when the skills of another are needed for a patient's recovery. I will respect the privacy of my patients, for their problems are not disclosed to me that the world may know. Most especially must I tread with care in matters of life and death. If it is given me to save a life, all thanks but it may also be within my power to take a life. This awesome responsibility must be faced with great humbleness and awareness of my own frailty. Above all, I must not play at God. I will remember that I do not treat a fever chart, a cancerous growth, but a sick human being, whose illness may affect the person's family and economic stability. My responsibility includes these related problems, if I am to care adequately for the sick. I will prevent disease whenever I can, for prevention is preferable to cure. I will remember that I remain a member of society with special obligations to all my fellow human beings, those sound of mind and body, as well as the infirm. If I do not violate this oath, may I enjoy life and art respected while I live and remembered with affection thereafter. May I always act so as to preserve the finest traditions of my calling, and may I long experience the joy of healing those who seek my help. Welcome back to the Medical School HQ Podcast. This is the podcast to learn how to excel as a pre-med student, learn what it takes to survive medical school, and turn your dream of becoming a physician into reality. We're bringing you the most unbiased, honest, and accurate information available online today. Hello, folks. My name is Ryan Gray, and I am joined today with my lovely co-host, Allison. Hello, everyone. Allison, talk about what I just read. 
What you just heard was the modern version of the Hippocratic Oath. It was written in 1964 by Dr. Louis Lasagna, academic dean of the School of Medicine at Tufts, and it's used in many medical schools today when physicians graduate at the end of medical school. And why are we reciting this oath today for you? Because uh, this is our 50th podcast episode, and we are super excited about that. That's crazy. Yeah, we are celebrating our 50th. And so in light of that, we reached out to one of uh, our Academy members, and and she gave us a great idea about talking about uh, something golden, because the 50th is, is a golden anniversary. And so uh, with that in mind, Ryan and I were brainstorming and came up with what we call 16 golden rules of medicine. There are probably lots more, but we're going to talk about, yeah, but we're going to talk about 16 of those for you with you uh, today. And that Academy member was Jessica. Yes, it was. So thank you, Jessica. And there's also another thing we're celebrating today. This is true. We reached a hundred five-star ratings in iTunes. And actually, it's 101, but if if you're in the States and you go and look at us, you only see 100. We we did have one from last week's podcast from Canada, and that's really not, that's not counted in the iTunes that we look at in the States. But we still love you, Canada. Yes, we do. So that's awesome, amazing. I, I am so thrilled to hit 100 five-star ratings, and, and we have perfect five-star ratings. Yeah, we are so grateful to all of you out there who write in and and give us uh, these wonderful reviews and let us know your thoughts and and give us these fabulous ratings. We we love doing this. We have a blast and it's so great to get your feedback. So thank you for taking a moment out of your busy days to to rate us and and give us these great reviews. So I want to just quickly read the five that came in since last week. We have Addicted to Medicine who says, love you guys. We love you too. We have uh, kind of a cryptic one, CHL03, who apparently is an Academy member. We don't know who they are. They need to tell us who they are in the Academy. Send us a message that you left this. They said, best med school resource. That's awesome. We have Girl 9 that says, so helpful. Merrick BYU says, daily food for thought. Thank you, Merrick. And we have Jared Easley that congratulates congratulated us on our 50th podcast and jared actually has a podcast which i love listening to called starve the doubts so if you haven't listened to that or if you you're in the mood for a new podcast go listen to jared he's at starvethedoubts.com or just search uh, in itunes for it so why don't we jump into our 16 golden rules of medicine So let's talk about the first rule, which as a physician is one of the fundamental foundations of what we do. So in medicine, there are four basic principles uh, of medical ethics. And one of these is first do no harm. So that's a perfect way to start these 16 golden rules with number one, first do no harm. So Ryan, what does first do no harm mean to you? Don't harm the patient. Right. (laughs) I think it's pretty self-explanatory. It is. Your, but... <laughs> your job as, as a physician is to treat a patient and not harm them. Right. And I think when 
every day as physicians in the busyness of what we do, we're running around and trying to take care of people and make their lives better and, and make them well. And there, you have to make decisions in a split second sometimes with not a lot of information, but you always want to go back to that first, first do no harm. So don't do something which has a high potential of harming the person and not a lot of potential of making them better. So it's always just one of those, those tenants that you want to go back to. Yeah. And something that we really truly live and work by. Yep. That's a, that's a given. I I think if, if you're in this profession, that's, that's your go-to every morning when you wake up. Yes. Number two, always be professional. I think that's another given. We're in a, a field where you're working with a bunch of other professionals, nurses, physicians, uh, Anybody, including your patients, uh, a lot of them are quote unquote professionals as well. So you need to be as professional as you can be and show the respect that your patients deserve and your other colleagues deserve. Right. And it doesn't mean just showing up in a suit and tie or making sure your scrubs are pressed or whatever. Not that anyone presses scrubs. presses scrubs? (laughs) I don't know. I'm sure some people do. I don't. Uh, but really what this makes me think about is that you always, even in the heat of the moment, when you're dealing with a really difficult situation or you're really sleep deprived, you haven't eaten in 12 hours or 20 hours and you're, you're really taxed, uh, and worn out. You always want to remember that you are a physician, you're taking care of other people and you need to, uh, hold yourself to the standards of what this profession means. And so you always need to, uh, have have respect for others, as Ryan said, and and remember not to lose your cool. Number three, show respect for everyone you work with. Yeah, I, I think this kind of falls under the be professional as well. It does. It's a perfect segue. But we we talk about this all the time with medicine as a team sport these days. And if you're not respectful with everybody, including the 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 janitor that's cleaning up the trauma bay after you just treated a patient, then your other colleagues will recognize that and and will treat you differently. Yeah, and you have to remember that every single person plays a crucial role in the hospital. And you may think, well, hey, I'm the physician and they're cleaning the floors. Well, guess what, folks? Your ability to get a very sick patient into an ICU bed from downstairs in the ER totally depends on whether that room is clean. And I can't tell you how many times we've had to hold up someone being transferred into an ICU bay because the room wasn't clean. So you're relying so heavily on all the staff members in every every way, the nurses, the medical assistants, the techs, the housekeeping staff everybody to get the patients what they need. And it that shouldn't be the reason why you have to respect people. I think as a human being working with other people, you should just want to respect everyone else uh, and try to treat everyone uh, with the same amount of grace and courtesy and dignity. But if you also just remind yourself of the fact that everybody in the hospital on that team is playing a crucial role, that will help to just keep that in your mind, even at times when you're frustrated. You always have to show respect for everybody. Next is always acknowledge your mistakes with patients. So this is a huge one and one that's a, a hot topic in the news a lot because there's there's actually a law out there called the the I'm sorry laws. I think that's what they're called. And so every state is a little bit different with how they protect physicians that go to a patient and say, I'm sorry. Something just 
something terrible just happened. And some states, there's 30 plus states that have these I'm sorry laws to where a patient can't sue you and use your apology as testimony in the court. So if you're in a state that allows your testimony, that testimony to say I'm sorry, think twice before saying I'm sorry. Obviously, you're going to get training when you're in a hospital on what to do. But the the ultimate message that we're trying to portray here is that you can't hide mistakes from patients. Yeah, this this is right into number uh, the next one, which is don't be dishonest with your team and with patients. And we all make mistakes in medicine. We're all human beings. And uh, you always want to take responsibility for something that happened. At what Ryan is pointing to is that you need to be aware of the le- legality behind what you're doing. And so you don't, just like when you get out of a car and you've had an accident, you don't run right up to the person you rear-ended and say, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I just rear-ended you. It's all my fault. Uh, I've done that. And the lawyers tell me that that's actually not what you're supposed to do (laughs) or lawyers in general. Uh, But it's the same kind of thing. You don't just want to rush out of the room and say, oh, this happened in the surgery and it was my mistake. No, this has to be done uh, very carefully. And any mistake that happens in a hospital setting, it's a medical legal thing. So you need to know what you're doing before you rush out there and start telling people. But the point that we're trying, our point at the end of the day is that you do want to take responsibility and acknowledge things that happen because you're trying to, um, again, as a physician, your your job is to take care of people and to first do no harm. And if harm happens, even if it was not intended, it needs the patient deserves the right to know. And, and it's part of maintaining that safe and secure doctor-patient relationship. Let's go to number five, taking care of yourself before you're able to take care of others. And this is a lot about what I talked about with Dr. Drummond back in Session 47, which you can find at medicalschoolhq.net slash 47 as an episode 47. And what we talked about was the fact that medicine and a lot of fields, uh, other fields where you are taught to put others before yourself, there's such a high rate of burnout. And to effectively take care of your patients to the best of your ability, you need to take care of yourself first. And that sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. And I have a motto, I had a motto back in med school and and internship where I said, food comes first. I didn't care where we were. If I was hungry and I felt myself crashing, food came first and I would go find food so that I would be able to take care of patients and not lay flat on my face in the hall. Ryan still reminds me of this on a daily basis. <laughs> it's yeah. very true. It, it really is true though, guys. I mean, uh, guys and gals, you have to you you have to be of sound mind and health and body to be able to care for another person. And it's something that we lose track of when we're, particularly when we're medical students and residents because you, your, uh, your desire and your, your obligation to serve others often comes directly in the face of and interferes, honestly, with your ability to put yourself first and eat and sleep and all these things. But at the end of the day, there comes, you know, there's a tipping point and you have to be able to stay behind that tipping point where you're still uh, safe and secure of body and mind so that you can then take care of other people. 
Number six. So this applies uh, particularly to when you're a medical student and a resident, and, and also if you remain in academic medicine, because in academic medicine, we do see a lot of what we call zebras. Uh, and uh, what is a zebra? <clears throat> well, what is a zebra? What is a horse? So in medicine, we use those terms to uh, describe patients or cases which are very rare. So rare being a zebra because they're far less common than horses and a horse being your average Joe, your average case. So in, in academic medicine, there's an inclination to start to think that every case you see is a zebra, that everything is something rare, something unheard of. But remember that you're trying to do the best you can by the patient and you have to think of what are the most common things first? What is the most likely thing that this could be? And yes, in your differential diagnosis, you want to think outside the box and think about what else could be going on so that you don't miss that. But you don't want to get so off target that you're missing the whole point. Yeah. And in today's world with Google and Medscape and all the other medicine portals and search engines out there, patients will come to you with the zebras on the top of their list. And so you need to do your best at explaining to them that the zebras probably aren't likely. Right. All right. Number seven, don't order a test just because you can bill for it. Uh, Something that you're taught in medical school and and sometimes goes away once you reach private practice, unfortunately, is the fact that you shouldn't be ordering tests unless the outcome of that test is going to change your medical management of that patient. If you're ordering a test to determine if you need to do a procedure or go further down the line and order different tests, then by all means, go get that test. If you're ordering a test just because it's easy to order and you might as well, think twice. Right. And this, you will see this shift, uh, particularly if you are at a major medical center, an academic center, as a resident, a medical student. Sometimes we use the phrase, oh, it's for academic interest. And that's not wrong. There are certainly times where there's a very complicated case and you uh, do want to look for that very rare thing. And, and there might be a test that you would order that in the quote unquote real world, you might not, but you have to be very careful when you do get into that real world and you're out in practice because you have to think about the fact that patients are going to get medical bills and things are not always covered by insurance. So while you might have been able to do things and look into things for academic interest when you were in the hospital, when you're out in practice, uh, you have to really think about the patient and and think about them as your family. If, if it were your family member, would you put put a huge medical bill in their mailbox uh, to get this test done that, that is not going to change what you do? I don't think so. No. So number eight kind of goes along with the number number five that we did before about taking care of yourself. And, and this is one where with medicine, there's a, a large population of physicians, unfortunately, that have addictions because they get burnt out, they get stressed out, and they have easy access to medications. Absolutely. And so the... What we wanted to to talk about here was the fact that when you are getting stressed out, when you are getting burnt out, go talk to somebody. Go seek help. The, the same advice that you would give to a patient, listen to it for yourself. 
Yeah. And throughout residency, I remember um, at MGH where I was there and in Brigham, there's a, an employee assistance program. But I know that a lot of hospitals have these these uh, anonymous basically places where you can go and just talk about how you're feeling. Uh, there are even some physicians who've created groups where you can go and just share your feelings. Uh, there's a medical school out there that's doing this with medical students, too, where the whole purpose is you go and you sit down and talk about how an experience made you feel. And I think that those are so important because you don't want to get to a place where you're resorting to drugs and alcohol and you get yourself in big trouble and your license is on the line and then you've lost everything that you've worked so hard to to do for so long because you've lost sight of what, what matters uh, and these are obviously serious things. These are addictions. They're, they're medical problems in and of themselves. But the point is you want to try to get help before you go down that route. Number nine. Number nine is go with your gut. And what we mean by this is when something doesn't look right or doesn't feel right and you have a red flag go up inside you that says something is not going well here with a patient, speak up, get help, trust your instincts. Yeah, your gut is a lot smarter than you give it credit for. So trust it. And and we're not saying use your gut and and diagnose somebody with that zebra that we talked about earlier, but use your gut to to notice a patient just doesn't look right and use that to to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, when when you're an intern, uh one of the things that you learn is how to really master that sixth sixth sense, how to uh, really learn to recognize when a patient is, is as we say, crumping or is beginning to crump, not looking well. And you'll, Is that like twerking? <laughs> no. Oh, dear okay. God, no. <laughs> no. Crumping, like starting to spiral, not looking good. You you get this sort of, of inner feeling uh, looking at someone thinking, this is just not going right. So trust that. Trust that instinct. And you'll hone that as an intern and beyond. Okay, number 10, get help from those with more experience when you need it. And this also segues nicely from what we just talked about. Uh, you don't want to just rely on yourself when you need help. Uh, if you're in a difficult uh patient encounter or you feel like something is over your head or maybe you're encountering a patient who has a new diagnosis uh, that you've never seen before uh, or maybe you're in the OR and something goes terribly wrong, get help from other people around you. Who You, you always want to use your resources as a physician because uh, you can't know it all. It's just impossible. And there are times when you're going to need help. So don't be arrogant and think you can do it all because you can't. Uh, it's just so important to be able to recognize those times when you need to reach out and get help. Yeah, I, I think you'll, you're starting to see a trend that what I read at the beginning of the podcast, a lot of these golden rules are built into the modern version of the Hippocratic Oath. And so I think it's a great thing. Go back and, and listen to that intro again of me reading it. I, th I thought I read it pretty well. You did. And okay. you can you can Google it online to find yes, it you, too. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Even um, better. Or you can just Google modern version Hippocratic Oath and you'll find it. And you can read the old one, too. The reason why we brought the modern one to your ears was that the older one uh, is a little bit harder to understand because it's in sort of older English. And it's just not as sort of pertinent, talks about uh, things that are quite different from how we are nowadays because medicine has been practiced for many, many, many years. So we wanted to uh, really 
bring uh, something which would resonate with a lot of our our listeners and and those who are already practicing physicians. Yeah. So number 11, and this one again kind of ties in with being professional and showing respect. And something you see a lot in residency, unfortunately, is don't argue with your colleagues from other departments or other services. It always seems to that when you're consulting another service or another team, there's always some some battle there, some some turf battle that that I don't know where it comes from, but it needs to it needs to get better, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of that that goes on. I think in general, even in hospitals where a lot of the services work very well together, there's just this sort of camaraderie among your own folk. And even I remember times when I would be sitting on call and it would be like the neurologist would sit with the neurologist and the medicine doctors would sit with the medicine or the internist and the surgeons would sit with the surgeons. You just kind of hang out with your own crowd. And sometimes people do resort to giving other services a hard time or sort of blaming them for something that might have happened with a patient. And that's really the last thing you want to do. Again, it's I think the reason that happens is people are just displacing their frustration, their inner frustration about how they feel in general onto somebody else. And the reason you want to be careful is number one, again, we're all on the same team. We're all trying to do what we can uh, to help the patient. And you're going to need help from those other services at times when you might not even expect it, maybe you're on call one night and someone crashes and you need help putting in a central line and your buddy, the surgeon who you gave, who you reamed out a week ago is the only one on call and now you're screwed. So you just have to keep these things in mind. And it also goes back to the chart. Uh, again, going back to lawyers, because in this litigious world we live in, you have to think about medical legal consequences of things. And Arguing in the chart is a huge no-no. Yeah, yeah, you can't you can't call out other services, other physicians in a chart. And I, I always talk about learning opportunities and teaching opportunities. And don't don't feel shy about teaching a fellow resident who's on a different service something. If if they're consulting you something, and you're just like, why the heck are you consulting me for this stupid thing? You should know this. Maybe they don't. Take take a couple minutes and save yourself five consults down the line because you're going to teach that resident what to look for, what is actually going on, and, the, and that they don't really need to consult you. Absolutely. And on that same token, it's perfectly a good idea, a great idea to ask that resident from another service or that attending, you know, hey, just for my own education, why did you do this this way? Or why would you recommend this? What what do I need to know for the future? I ask that question plenty of times. Again, you want to take every learning opportunity you can. Yeah. And and some might be taken aback by it and get frustrated that you're asking. But just if, if you're coming from a, a good heart, then you'll be okay. So, okay. So the next one, document everything. Yes. And everything gets documented. Document, document, document. I think I heard that like n- nothing else <laughs> in training. The reason if it wasn't documented in the legal world, it never happened. Believe that. It's true. Uh, when something goes wrong, they always go back to the chart. And if it was never written down, again, there's no proof that it ever happened. So someday you could be called on a witness stand uh, and someone could say, well, Dr. So-and-so 
uh, on this day, you tell me that you did this, but when I look in the chart, there's nothing there. That is the end all be all of what you don't ever want to happen. So every conversation you have with a patient, whether it's on the phone, any family meeting you have, and of course your daily notes, you always want to make sure that, that you always document things that happen in medicine. So it sounds like half of our golden rules here are because of lawyers. No, 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 no. But it is true. I mean, I think, you know, just realistically speaking, as a physician practicing in the United States and certainly in other countries too, but again, we, you know, most of us here live in the U.S. and we do live in a litigious society. And so we're telling you these things, uh, some of them because honestly, they just duplicate as as uh, really important tenets to abide by as a physician. I mean, if you're a practicing physician, you want to be documenting everything anyway. It's not just about covering your behind, uh, but it we some of these do also carry over into the legal world. So we're not trying to scare you by bringing up lawyers or make these beautiful golden rules about legal stuff. It's not. It's just that they do have legal ramifications, and we want you to know what we know. Yeah. So the next one. Be careful about giving out medical advice to family and friends. And this is a huge one. And it, it was funny, the other day I was sitting at work doing, I was outside of the my medical clinic doing some other fun stuff that I do as a, a flight surgeon in the Air Force. And there was somebody else in the room, there was just four of us in the room, and one person started talking about how they didn't feel well. And she, and she said, my, my stomach kind of hurts and I feel really bad. And she was, she was running down her list of symptoms and she's like, what do you think's going on? I said, I, I don't know. Go, go schedule an appointment with your doctor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I didn't really feel bad saying that because there, there's an appropriate time to ask a physician questions and there's, there's not an appropriate time. And when you're in a room with other people, that's not an appropriate time. And, and you're going to get bombarded with questions from family and friends and don't don't feel bad saying you know what I'm just not comfortable trying to diagnose you over the phone or over Skype or FaceTime definitely even in person I mean the reality is that there's no privacy in a lot of these circumstances and even if it is even if your grandmother calls you on the phone you can't have the opportunity to examine her and that would also kind of be weird depending on what the problem is uh, and so you have to think about uh, the fact that you're not going to have complete information and you always want to have as much information as possible when you're trying to make diagnostic decisions and then therapeutic decisions. Uh, so it's just not a good idea. It's not a good idea. And it also can get you into trouble because what happens if you recommend something or even what happens if you prescribe something for a family member or a friend uh, and not just, you know, like some Motrin, but but something, a really big deal drug. And then uh, something bad happens. There's a bad outcome. That person, again, doesn't really have a doctor-patient relationship where they can go and, and it's legitimized and it's in a medical record. It, it just gets you and that family member or friend into a very difficult situation. And there are actually rules, there are, there are laws about that you're not allowed to prescribe uh, narcotics um, or opiates, you're not allowed to prescribe um, controlled substances for family and friends. Yeah. All right. All right. What's next? Next is uh, number 14. So when dealing with difficult patients, always keep in mind that it's not personal. And this is really important. Uh, you have to you're going to 
run into so many difficult situations with patients because we're human beings and we come in all different shapes and sizes and flavors and uh, we have a tendency to be difficult at times. And uh, what does that mean? Well, people can be very aggressive or rude. They can be uh, tearful and bawling all over the place. Patients can be very emotional and they can also uh, really make you feel like you're not being respected, um, sometimes because of the, the questions they ask or the way that they act, their behavior. And uh, this comes up all the time. It really does. It's it's I've seen it in the inpatient setting and in the outpatient setting. And I, I heard about it recently. <laughs> yeah. I had a rough day a while back and I came home and complained about it. <laughs> but that's, again, it's about human being, human beings dealing with one another in a doctor-patient relationship. And so what I try to remind myself of, and I'm not always good about this in the heat of the moment, but you have to be, you just have to be, is that uh, the person who's sitting in front of you may be having the worst day of their life. Ryan always has this great saying that he tells me, which is, um, never assume, uh, you never know, because you don't know that that person, the, the difficult son of, of the 85-year-old lady you're seeing who happens to be with her today could have just gotten fired from his job. He may have just uh, found out his wife was cheating on him. He, he could be having the worst day of his life, or he's in the hospital and just found out that his, his mother um, is terminally ill with some horrible type of cancer. So you have to just keep in mind that you're it's not personal. You're there to try and help and they are going through a very difficult time, maybe the most difficult time they've ever had. The other thing to remember is in those kind of normal situations, quote unquote normal, when you're in the office and someone starts acting a certain way or being aggressive with you, sometimes they're dealing with pretty significant psychological issues. Um, Maybe they have severe depression or anxiety or impulsive problems and Uh, So again, the patient is the one who has to deal with whatever they came to you with when they leave the office. So you don't want to take it in and and make it personal. You just want to do the best you can to try to do what you can for them as a doctor and not not take it in and and make it mean something about you personally. All right. I'm glad you you gave a little personal story there. (laughs) We we all struggle sometimes. (laughs) Number 15, don't offer something to a patient that you don't think makes sense. And this kind of ties into what we talked about earlier as far as ordering tests that you don't think are needed. Go, go a little bit further into this one. I think another reason why this is so important is if we think about uh, end-of-life care in this country and some of the biggest healthcare dollars that are spent uh, currently are in taking care of patients who are terminally ill or who are chronically ventilated, uh, maybe vegetative. Uh, And so the reason this is so important is that uh, we're not always great in talking to patients and their families about what makes sense, given what their, their what we call goals of care are. So for example, if a patient is terminally ill and their goals of care are that they really just want to be comfortable and uh, live out the rest of their life with as much comfort as possible, and any surgery or treatment that you're going to provide them is not going to make their uh, their illness better. It's maybe only going to cause harm or make things uh, no or make things no better. Uh, do you really want to be offering that surgery? And the answer is no. Uh, and um, 
this is something which I think is really uh, personally very important to me in, in uh, treating patients at the end of life in neurology during my residency. It came to really uh, be very passionate about this area because, again, uh, if someone's had a devastating stroke and they're not going to be interacting with the world around them again, do you really want to be offering them some sort of big surgery or big treatment that is really not in line with with what's best for them, for that person uh, in that body. And and I think we have to think about these things so carefully. And in some ways, uh, we have gotten off track and we are offering things now that, that uh, shouldn't be offered uh, because, again, there's this concept of autonomy, which is, is very important in terms of patients being able to advocate for themselves and what they want. But we have to be careful that we're not offering them things like pizza toppings. That's the, the analogy I give people. You, you don't want to go and say, well, do you, do you want you know pineapple or pepperoni with that? These are not pizza toppings. These are serious medical uh, treatments and interventions, and you want to offer them what makes sense. Well said. Why don't you finish up with the last one? All right. Number 16. So number 16 is always try to abide by the principle of beneficence. So just as we started these 16 golden rules with first do no harm, first do no harm is one of the four major tenets of of medical ethics in, in doctoring. And beneficence is also one of those four. And beneficence means doing something that will promote the well-being of the patient. So even if you can't heal the patient, you can't cure his or her disease, you can always treat the patient with kindness and you can always listen. And if you go back to when Ryan was reading the Hippocratic Oath, the modern version, one of the things that that doctor, the physician uh, talked about um, in, in this beautiful oath that he wrote was that sometimes a kind word is stronger than a, a chemist's drug or a surgeon's knife. And that's something that as a physician, you have to keep in mind because you're not always going to be able to fix people. Nature is nature. And sometimes we we win and we do well, and sometimes we totally lose and don't. And as a physician, you have to remember that you have you can always offer a kind word and, and a shoulder and an ear and and being that, that presence that um, gives people faith and gives people comfort even when you're not actually curing the disease that they're they're suffering from. That's a great, great number 16 and, and a perfect one to end on. So hopefully you guys got a lot of great information today about the 16 golden rules of medicine that Allison and I put together. We want to thank you, and we we want to say that we definitely appreciate all of you that take a little bit of time every week to listen to us uh, jabber on about <laughs> different topics on the pre-med path, the medical school path. We definitely enjoyed doing this for you guys, and I hope you guys get a lot of great information from it. I'm assuming you do with the 105 star ratings, and and so we we want to say thank you. Yeah, thank you guys for being such an awesome audience, and we have just such a blast doing this, and we can't wait to do 50 more. Yes, 150 more, maybe. If you have any ideas for any podcast episodes, please let us know. Email me. I'm ryan at medicalschoolhq.net. Or you can email me, allison, at medicalschoolhq.net. If you haven't, if you're not one of those 100 uh, listeners that have left a five-star rating, you can do so at medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes. And if you're listening in Stitcher, you can rate us in Stitcher, too, and that will help out as well. So until next week, which will be episode 51, 
in almost a full year of releasing, because we've released an episode every week for almost a year, fifty, obviously 52 weeks in a year. So we're a couple weeks away from a full year of podcasts. So we're excited. We have a lot of great podcasts lined up for you guys. So we hope you join us next time here at the Medical School Headquarters. (laughs) 